Joshua chapter 22. <coughs> Joshua chapter 22. Um, you can find that on page 196 in the Red Pew Bible. 196. This morning we're going to be starting at verse 10, and then we'll actually be finishing uh, the chapter out. Now, I'm sure you're all aware, there has been a lot of drama in the news lately, which has been brought on by some high-profile court cases. It's been next to impossible, I think, not to hear about the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse just down the road from us in Kenosha. Um, and then right after the conclusion of that trial, uh, there was the conviction of three Georgia men for the murder of Ahmed Arbery. And then just recently, uh, we've been, I've been following the, uh, the hearing of Daryl Brooks, who has been charged with murder and assault for driving recklessly through uh, that parade in Waukesha two weeks ago. And now we also have uh, a Supreme Court case that we're all eagerly looking to to, to praying that God is going to use this to strike a, a real blow uh, to abortion here in our nation. I don't usually make uh, this much of a habit of following court cases, but I just I have not been able to keep myself from not seeing a, a, from not following what's been going on, especially uh, with the proceedings uh, that were going on down in Kenosha that led to the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. Part of that was because we were going to be driving uh, from Georgia up through Kenosha about uh, we were I was kind of praying that the jury would wait because uh, I didn't want to get caught up in any sort of riots while we were driving through um, but even as I was watching and, and eagerly looking to see what was going to happen it was it was clear that there are a lot of people who were saying a lot of different things prior to the trial some of which were true many of which uh, were not um, that kind of got dispelled in this case. And, and this was an important trial for a lot of reasons. It got national attention for a reason. Uh, as the case developed and as the facts of the case um, actually debunked the perspective that the prosecution was arguing for, it really set a stage for um, what Judge Schroeder, who was over the case, had said was he, his desire to see in all this, that a, it was a fair trial that reinstated our confidence in the system of trial by jury. And in his closing remarks, I watched as Judge Schroeder emphasize his gratitude to the jury for doing just that. Uh, the Rittenhouse trial showed me that justice is not just about having simply the facts of the case, but also having the right perspective of those facts. And the witnesses that were called to the stand helped to establish what really happened on that tragic night in Kenosha. And their testimonies were key in exonerating Kyle of, of murder. Now, we're looking this morning at another high-profile case, one that happened many years ago in the days of Joshua. It's a case involving the two-and-a-half tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh just after Joshua sent them home to their families, back to the land um, across the Jordan. The fundamental issue of this situation has to do with having a right zeal for the holiness of God and the purity of worship. And it, this, is, this is recorded strategically in great detail for us in Joshua 22. I always like to remind, uh, I have to be reminded, we take uh, papers very, um, it's, it's very easy for us to get. Um, we have, we, if you need something to write on, we've got things provided for you over here. Uh, you can pick up a napkin and write notes on it. But in the days when the Bible was first being written, it was written on parchment, and it was expensive. Anytime you read a passage of such great length, like what we're about to read, and the details that were included, it's a reminder that these were, this is something that we ought to take time to think about. Because it was a great expense. This is not something to just, this is not just a story to just slosh our way through and move on to the next thing. This is something that's precious. And there's a lot of detail in this that's intended to teach us a lesson of how to function as God's people. Now, it's been about two weeks since we were last in this series. So a quick reminder about what's going on here is in order, I think. Now, with the conclusion of Joshua 21, our author went to great lengths to inform us about how God had kept everything he had said he was going to do to Israel. He had done everything. Not one promise had fallen flat. 
God brought Israel into the land. He gave them a possession in it. He established them there with safety and security from their enemies. He gave them a plan for the future and provided them with everything they needed to become a flourishing society. And he even established a dwelling place among the people at Shiloh where he called them to come and to worship. The final chapters of the rest of the book of Joshua are focused specifically on Israel's response to God's faithfulness. And so that's what we're looking at today. In order to remain in the land, Israel had to walk in obedience to God's covenant commands. Joshua chapter 22 preaches a sermon, a strong message to future generations of Israelites about the importance of the purity of God's worship. And that's what we're going to learn from today. This chapter models uh, wise judgment for God's people when they find themselves at odds with one another over different perspectives. And this is an important passage also because it teaches us some crucial lessons, not only for how God has delivered his people in the past, but also because it models wisdom for the church today and how to go on living in the promises that that we have received in and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And those are the lessons that I want to draw out from this passage for you today. So let's begin by reading our passage. Uh, If you would, please stand with me once again for the reading of God's word as I read from Joshua chapter 22. Verses 10 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. And with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and from which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, the Lord, He knows, and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion... Or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, 
but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our, time, our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, looking at this passage, I think it, I'm kind of curious. Is this passage that uh, anyone really is familiar with here? Not really. It's a wonder that this passage doesn't get more attention than it does. Because it's an important moment in the nation of Israel, which actually avoids a really serious disaster that could have, been, uh, that could have come. Now, as we look at this passage, it's somewhat lengthy, but I think we had to cover the whole passage in order to see the significance of what was happening here. Uh, as we look at it, we find that it's laid out in five parts. First, we have the situation described for us in verses 10 through 12. Then we have a trial, both with the accusation in verse 13 through 20 and the defense in verses 21 through 29. Following that, we have the judgment in verses 30 through 31. And then we have the conclusion in verses 32 through 34, where the reputation of the tribes is cleared, and they are restored in fellowship with the rest of the people with the resounding statement, the Lord is in our midst. As I think about it, this passage is maybe more of a Christmas sermon uh, than uh, we have maybe, maybe would have thought, simply because it asserts what we celebrate at this time of year, that God is with us and that he's done that through his son, Jesus. Now, the main idea of this passage, what it aims to teach us by example, is that the purity of God's worship is a matter of life and death. Worship is a matter of life and and death. Now this is an important lesson for the church today for at least two reasons. First, the church today is under regular assault to make worship something other than it was intended by God to be. Second, it's important because we are living in a postmodern, pluralistic age where people demand to have God on their own terms and who are offended by the notion that they must submit themselves to him on his terms. Worship is about having the right response to the truth of who God is. That is the reason that it is a matter of life and death, not a matter of preference. Romans 1 verse 18 explains that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For though God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, although, although man knew God, mankind has not honored God or given thanks to him. Wrong worship, according to the book of Romans, 
the suppression of the truth of who God is invokes the justice of God's wrath, and rightly so. So it is not overstating things to say that the purity of God's worship is a matter of life and death for us as his people. Joshua chapter 22 teaches us four important lessons about what it looks like to live with zeal for God's holiness and with zeal for God's worship, which is what I want to highlight for you as we move through this text. I know I usually give you those points as we go. If you have the sermon notes, uh, you should have those, but I'm going to actually lay out these points for you as we move through this passage. First, I want to begin by looking at the exact situation of what happened when these uh, two and a half tribes, these eastern tribes, went to their homes. We want to make sure we understand the situation of what was going on before we try to draw out any conclusions about it. Now, we were told in verse 9 that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh departed from the assembly of the people at Shiloh and that they went to their homes across the river Jordan. But apparently, before they crossed the river, the good idea fairy struck, and they decided it was a good idea for them to build an altar there. Now, it baffles me that in order to have a testimony of, hey, we have the same portion with you that you have in the Lord, that these tribes decided to build this altar on the west side of the Jordan River, seeing as they lived on the east side of the Jordan River. The more I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of different commentators, and that's the way they read this as well. It's a strange idea. I think that they did that, though, so that it was obvious that, hey, uh, we didn't just build this on our side of the river. We actually built it on your side of the river. So, therefore, you know that we actually, we have that same, we have business being on your land. So as we see, before they left for their homes, they built this altar. Uh, This altar was no mere pile of rocks. It was unmistakable. Sometimes you might walk down a a path and see a bunch of rocks stacked up on top of people, or on top of each other. Now you know that didn't happen there naturally. Somebody walked along there. Somebody put those rocks there. This was not one of those piles of rocks that has no significance. This was recognizable. This was exactly the same as the altar that was at the tabernacle. More than that, it was built of an imposing size. So this was actually intended to grab people's attention, and we see that it did just that. In verse 11, we're told that the people of Israel, that is, all of the tribes on the western side of the river, heard about what Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh had done. And when they heard this, it's interesting as we're reading this, it's almost like the words are just, they're jumbled. they're, They're urgently trying to get out. It's like they can't even say, complete the sentence, before they're already grabbing their swords and their shields, going to Shiloh, assembling themselves, armed and ready to go to war. Now, as we read this, we might think to ourselves, that's just a little bit of an overreaction, don't you think? I mean, this is... This is an altar, yeah, but people including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Joshua himself have been building altars all over the land of Canaan for a long time. So as we read this from our perspective, it's not terribly obvious in this first section as to why it would be worth going to war over something like this. What is it about this altar that got the western tribes so stirred up that they were willing to put their armor back on, draw their swords, assemble as one man to go to war against their own brothers? Well, the answer comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where Moses explained to the people that when they entered the land, uh, that they were to destroy all the places where the Canaanite nations had worshipped their gods. Now, the Canaanites were known for worshiping on the high mountains and on the hills. Uh, They worshiped their carved images, their Baals, and their Asherahs. And Israel, Moses instructed them, was not to worship God in that manner. They were to seek out the place where God would choose. There was one place. There, they were to bring their sacrifices, tithes, and offerings. It was all meant to happen at that one place. Their worship was meant to be a coming together before the Lord, not a spreading out to worship however anyone saw fit in their own manner. 
Moses says, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring and that uh, bring in that I command you. So what's going on there is what we see as Moses is speaking in Deuteronomy 12. We have had in Joshua chapter 21 the fulfillment of every one of those stipulations. Therefore, it is clearly, it's abundantly clear, or ought to have been to the nation of Israel, there's one place where you come to worship. And that place was Shiloh. That was the place where the tabernacle was established. Now, when the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built this altar, it looked to everyone who saw it like a severe breach of that command. Everyone knew what this was. It was big, and it was an exact copy of what was at Shiloh, which is the the place, as I've said, that God had established his dwelling place. By building this altar, it looks like the tribes are trying to shift things. It looked like they are intentionally defying God and his commands. That's the reason these other tribes gather themselves together for war. Actually, even the language of our author reflects this because he doesn't refer to the, to, to the, to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and this half-tribe of Manasseh as part of the congregation of Israel. It's until this situation is cleared up. Only then are they restored. But he calls the other tribes the congregation of Israel. So you can see, even from the author's point of view, this looks looks like a big breach of faith. From their perspective, it looked like these other tribes are already following down the path of the Canaanites, worshiping God according to their own manner uh, as they want to do. It looked like these tribes were trying to worship God on their own terms, and they are afraid of where this is going to lead the whole nation. They're afraid of the ramifications for their own children and for themselves. Now, the reaction of the Western tribes might seem a little extreme to us, but I do think it was the right response. They took this action very seriously, which is what leads us to consider the first lesson of this passage for God's people, which is that worship matters. Worship matters. And you've probably heard someone talk about worship wars. That's when churches get in fights over preferences of worship, like should we sing hymns or should we sing praise choruses? Should we have a piano or a guitar? Uh, should we have a drum set or should we sing a cappella? Does, does dancing or clapping or, or, or any, anything like that have a place in the service and so on? Uh, people have strong opinions when it comes to thinking through what's appropriate for God's people in the midst of our worship. And those are important questions for the church to think through. But I find that most of the conflict you see today in the church, especially over how we worship together, really misses the point. The Bible gives us clear regulations on what our worship should look like. For example, Colossians 3 says, Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're called by the Bible to devote ourselves to prayer and to the teaching of the apostles, to be regularly gathered together in fellowship. And there's a lot of room uh, within those commands for certain preferences. But what the Bible will not allow us to have is to have room for error on the substance of our worship or on the subject of our worship. When we look at the tribes of Israel strapping on their swords here, we shouldn't think that this is just some, another petty scuffle over worship preferences. It was a matter of obedience to God's clear commands concerning his worship. We're looking at a passionate defense being mounted over the substance of worship. We don't get to come to God on our own terms. We come to him in worship because he is worthy in response to to he is, but we must also come to him in the way that he calls us to come, which is through the gracious means that he has provided. That is why the people gathered themselves together for war, because in every way from where they were standing, it looked like this was a vicious departure from the substance of true worship and obedience to God. And the importance of worship 
is shown to us in this passage in three ways. First, it's shown, obviously, in the fact that the nation was willing to draw swords over the issue. The scene here is not unlike what we see uh, going on on the slopes of Mount Sinai, which is where, if you remember, the people had worshipped that golden calf that they demanded Aaron to take uh, and make for them. This is the level of seriousness going on here. The welfare of the nation is in peril, and the people were willing, therefore, to fight to the death in order to preserve a holy worship in their midst. Second, we see the importance of worship in how, in, in, actually in, what this, in the pronunciation of this accusation in verses 16 through 20. I think this is where we see most clearly what's at stake here. Phineas, one, uh, on behalf of the congregation at, of, of Israel, asks these other tribes, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, from which even yet we have not yet cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? This altar business, from the perspective of everyone who has heard about it and everyone who had seen it, was a gross transgression against God's commands. It was a breach of faith. The tribes of Israel understood that right worship really is a matter of life and death, which is shown thirdly in the way that they sent men who had a reputation for being zealous for holiness to investigate the situation further. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we read that the people of Israel selected and sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, to meet, to meet with these eastern tribes. Now, how many of you are familiar with Phinehas? Yeah, oh, you should be. Uh, Phinehas is the guy who, who should have been picked for this. He's qualified for two reasons, and he's the most qualified for this for two reasons. First of all, Phineas was a priest. More specifically, he's the son of Eleazar, who is the high priest. It is the business of the priest to be able to distinguish between the holy and the carnal. If anyone is qualified to make an assessment about the situation here, it's Phineas because of his station. He has been trained for this. But second, the reason Phineas stands out as the guy who should have been sent is because Phineas had proved himself, himself specifically at, uh, at, at Peor, which we can read about in Numbers chapter 25. If you've never read Numbers 25, you need to, because that's where you see Phineas uh, in action. Peor is actually where the women of Moab had lured men from Israel into idol worship and into committing all sorts of sexual acts that led to a plague breaking out in the camp of Israel. And while Moses and Joshua and the people were mourning before the Lord, at the t at, before the tent of meeting, we're told in Numbers 25 how one man of Israel took a Moabite woman, woman into his tent in front of everyone. He walked her in front of everyone as they are grieving this plague that has broken out and took her into his tent and everyone knew what was happening. We're told that seeing this, Phineas, this same guy, in his zeal, took up a spear, ran into the tent, and pinned the couple to the ground, which ended the plague in the camp. This is the guy you want to investigate matters of breaches of faith before the Lord. This is the guy who intervened for the rest of the camp. It's a really big deal that the nation sends Phineas, the champion of the zeal of the holiness of God, to get to the bottom of what's going on here. It shows you how serious the situation is. It shows us that this isn't a petty squabble, but that it was a situation of, with, with the, of the utmost gravity. The people sent a specialist in to investigate what looked to be a terrible breach of the nation's faithfulness to God. So worship matters. The way we come to God is a matter of life and death and eternity. 
Joshua chapter 22 shows us what a serious issue it is to violate God's grace and mercy and sovereignty by trying to deal with him on our own terms. He will have total surrender from us or he will have nothing. He calls sinners to come and to receive mercy and to receive forgiveness, to bring our sins and our burdens to him. But if we're to come to God to receive that, we have to come through the means that he has appointed. And that means is no one and nothing other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The debates over the particulars of of worship will continue to go on in the church. But the true church must stand united on this mountaintop issue, that there is salvation in no other name and in no one else than Jesus Christ. True worship starts with a right view of who he is and a belief in the gospel of grace. And so we must begin this morning by understanding that our worship matters and that the means we come to God through matters. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now the second lesson of this passage is primarily for the church in the midst of conflict. This passage teaches us the art of discernment the discipline of communication, and the importance of investigation when we have matters of disagreement. It's a tragic reality of living in a fallen world that God's people do not always see eye to eye with one another. Since the church was first formed under Christ, she has had to work through all sorts of disagreements. Some of those issues were over key doctrines of faith. Others have been over matters of personal conscience. There is no shortage of such issues in the church today. So this is an important passage for us to consider as we think about how we ought to interact with brothers and sisters who we may disagree with. As we read a little further in Joshua chapter 22, we come to realize that this whole business of the altar is a great big misunderstanding. Both the tribes to the east and the tribes to the west actually wanted the same thing. They both loved God. They both wanted to see God honored. They both wanted to protect the legacy of faith that they had received, and they wanted to pass that down to their children who came after them. Those intentions and desires weren't necessarily obvious from what goes on here initially, but it does become apparent as Phineas talks to these two and a half tribes that he's been sent to meet with. So I find that Joshua chapter 22 actually provides us with a vital lesson as a church, to understand how to, how to navigate our way through conflict, how to strive against extremism, and how to work together in brotherly love, always seeking after the truth. Let's start by looking at what Phineas had to say uh, on behalf of the tribes to the West. Phineas makes it clear that this altar looks like a gross sin, the kind of sin that has the capacity of bringing wrath down, not only on the people who built it, but on the entire nation itself. Haven't you had enough sin, he asked them? We haven't even recovered from the sin of our fathers at Peor, and believe me, I was there. I know. I don't want to go back there. I still have the spear. Don't you remember Achan? How he broke faith over some gold and a nice shirt? He didn't die alone. In verse 18, Phineas says, If you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So Phineas explains things from his perspective, and he makes the gravity of the situation very clear to these tribes. He's after truth, and so he pulls no punches but rather gives a key example of what it looks like to be zealous for the Lord, while also avoiding the pitfalls of jumping to conclusions and assumptions about other people's arguments. Phineas comes on strong, but we find that he's also very wisely willing to listen. And it's a good thing that he does, because when the other tribes respond to his accusations, he realizes that they actually shared the same priorities with each other. Starting in, verses, in verse 21, 
we, we hear how the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh answer by first and foremost upholding their commitment to the Lord. They actually call God and the rest of Israel to witness against them, saying that they did not mean for this altar to be a place of sacrifice. They say, if it was in rebellion or in a breach of faith against the Lord, then do not spare us today. That would be a crime worthy of being destroyed. We won't even fight you about it. Rather, we see in verse 24, the people explain that they built this altar to be a witness, to testify to something. Because they were afraid that in time, the children of the western tribes might try to exclude their children from their own inheritance in the Lord. So they say, your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So this action that has been taken has been taken because the people are concerned that their children after them receive their same faith and are not cut off from God. So as we look at this, we can see both in the accusation and in the defense that both the eastern and the western tribes have the same concern, the pure worship of God. Both sides take different steps to deal with the issue. Steps that made sense from what they could see of this situation, but which almost led to disaster. I don't think it was necessarily wise for these eastern tribes to build this altar. I think that they had great intentions, but it almost started a justifiable war. At the same time, if these western tribes had attacked the eastern tribes without getting to the bottom of things first, that too would have been a disaster. Because there was no sin at work here as they first supposed. It took a trial to get to the bottom of things. It took a willingness to ask hard questions in the pursuit of truth. And that is a key lesson for the church of Christ to take from this passage. Phineas and the heads of the people had a zeal for God's glory that led them not just to wield the sword, but to pursue truth and to do it in love. That pursuit of truth led to peace among the people. And that's an important lesson for us as we consider how we ourselves might be called to navigate conflicts that we might have with each other. Phineas had a zeal for the glory of God and the right worship of God, but that zeal did not automatically end in bloodshed. In fact, it prevented it. The pursuit of truth led to the discovery of truth in a way that only further cemented unity between God's people. Notice how Phineas, what, what he says about this situation, how he actually praises God and how God had worked to further reveal his presence among the people. In verse 31, he says, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not com- committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Uh, that, that's saying a lot for Phineas, the defender of the holiness of God, to say something about people who uh, the people were gathered, the people who are with him are ready to go to war with. There's a sweet unity we find that accompanies God's people that binds us together in the truth and further testifies to his work and his presence among us. The tribes themselves echoed Phineas's words in verse 34, calling the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So this dangerous situation, through wisdom and through the presence of the Lord working in and among the people, actually turns into a worship service. The situation is not unlike what we read in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council. Luke tells us there that certain men from Judea were teaching that unless a person was circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then they could not be saved. Obviously, what we have learned from the book of Galatians is that that's a problem because it makes salvation a matter of works, not a matter of grace. And so as the church worked together to get to the bottom of this issue, we see how the church in Antioch sent to the church in Jerusalem to have them consider the issue. And through the testimony of faithful witnesses, the apostles and, and Barnabas and Paul who were sent uh, as witnesses, we see that the churches came to an official understanding that salvation was for all people through the blood of Christ, and that it was not a matter of works, but a matter of grace. And the church today faces many issues of debate, issues that are serious, but we cannot solve those issues if we only ever grab for the sword. 
The soldier of Christ must first and foremost be a lover of truth. He must pursue truth, not being willing to make peace with a lie or with a false doctrine, but must seek Christian unity in the truth of the gospel, in the same way that Phineas pursued truth when he met with these tribes. We will do well, I think, to incorporate his example into the way that we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, even if we disagree with one another on issues that are not ultimately fundamental to the faith. Now, the third lesson we have from this passage has to do with the infectious nature of sin. The reason why this wasn't an overreaction for Israel to call itself to arms over an altar was because sin has consequences for us all. There is no such thing as a private sin. There is no such thing as a private sin. Phineas makes that very apparent, doesn't he, in this speech to the Eastern nations. They were the ones who built this altar. We would judge that if anyone was going to be judged, if anyone was going to incur God's wrath, then it obviously would be them. But we see that that's not how Israel saw things. The whole nation could have actually suffered for this. And Phineas, to make that point, draws comparisons to two of the worst moments in Israel's history to make this point. Both the plague at Peor and the defeat of Israel at Ai were had as the result of individual decisions to disobey God. In this instance, the nation of Israel was willing to go to war because the people knew that they couldn't allow this sin, at least as they saw it, to go on undealt with. Phineas's appeal to these tribes is, don't rebel, because he knew by extension it would cause them to be rebels as well. He even gives these tribes a way out. He says, if the land of your possession is unclean, then pass over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Uh, that's saying something about the priority of holiness right here, isn't it? I mean, imagine you've just gotten your piece of the promised land and then you see your brothers and sisters seemingly being taken into a gross error. And your reaction is, hey, if that is an unclean place, if this is going to be how this continues to be, you're going to continue to be led into sin, then leave that place and come live with me. Flee this rebellion. Live in the place where the presence of God is easy to come to. Come back, if that's what it's going to take. These people... Phineas and the tribes, the, the heads of these, these tribes, would have rather given up part of their possession to their brothers to keep out uncleanness than to bring guilt into the nation on the, um, by harboring greed. The lesson we should see here is one that we've seen before in the book of Joshua, that there is no such thing as a private sin. Our individual sin has consequences for us, but it also hurts others. The reason the church is called to take sin so seriously, even to the point of exercising church discipline in some cases, is because when sin goes ignored, it brings guilt on us all. You can remember how Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, how they were boasting about how they allowed one of their members to go on unchecked, even though he was committing a sin that was not even allowed among the pagans. How they boasted about how tolerant they were. How they were able to look over that and how great the grace of God of which they were pouring on it. And Paul says, I will not commend you in that. Exercise the discipline you have been charged to do. If we are truly zealous for the righteousness and the glory of God, then we cannot, we cannot afford to take sin lightly or to brush it off and say, oh, well, it's none of my business. Christ has bound us together as one people in him. We are part of a body. We have a responsibility, not just for how we live, but we have a responsibility towards one another. And it's a responsibility of love. To love as we have been loved means hating sin enough to be willing to confront it in one another, to be willing to walk beside one another, to be willing to treat one another with a firm gentleness, all for the sake of the glory of Christ.
Joshua chapter 22 will not allow us to give into the mistaken notion that my sin is my own business and no one else's, since it is clearly apparent that our decisions affect more than just us. As God's creation, we, have, we are each responsible to our creator for how we live, and thus it is a monstrous idea to think that somehow we are above scrutiny for how we live. The consequences of sin are just too high. And so, let us resolve as a church to be willing to be invested in and to be willing to invest in one another by being willing to lovingly confront sin, to stand against unrighteousness, to ask the hard questions, to invest uh, the time of account- that accountability takes, and to be willing to face the pain of forgiveness and long-suffering with each other, dealing with one another the way Christ has dealt with us. Now, the fourth and final lesson of this chapter is that we must learn to avoid the mistaken notion that our identity and our relationship with God is determined by outward signs or altars or totems or buildings. When I think, uh, while I think that this was a really bad idea to build this altar, I do think that the eastern tribes probably had a legitimate reason to be concerned about the welfare of their children. The book of Judges shows us how quickly the next generation fell away into false worship. These tribes have a reason to be worried. Uh, We're told here that when Phinehas and the other leaders heard about why they had built the altar, that it was not supposed to be a place of sacrifice, but was supposed to be a witness that guarded their own children's access to God, we're told that it was good in their eyes. In fact, we see in verses 32 and 33 that it pleased all the people and that the western tribes no longer spoke about making war on their brothers. At the same time, though I think we have to recognize, uh, I think that this whole situation really could have been avoided if the eastern tribes had just not built this altar in the first place. There are better ways to ensure that your children still have access to worship. This altar really looked like a breach of faith to everyone who saw it except for the tribes who actually built it. And I think there's an important lesson for us to take regarding what actually signals our allegiance to God. When Joshua sent these tribes home, he actually commended them, and he charged them to be obedient to God's commands. Nowhere did he ever tell them, hey, go out there and build an altar of witness before you cross over back to your homes. Our allegiance to God is not about having a nativity in our front yard. It's not about hanging a cross in our living room. It's not about wearing one around our neck. It's not about wearing or having a WWJD bracelet on our arm. I don't even know if people wear those anymore. It's, it's not a matter of attending a certain number of church services or reading a certain number of Bible verses or anything like that. Not that any of those things are necessarily wrong. But if we, te- if we trust those things to be the witness of our relationship with God, we have put it in the wrong place. We show that we have an inheritance in Christ when we obey Christ from a heart that has been made new, from a heart that loves Him above everything else. When we look to outward things to signal our allegiance or our faith, we're looking at the wrong things. For chapters now, for chapters, the author of Joshua has been pounding into our heads that even though these tribes received what some might consider to be a, the lesser portion on the other side of the river with a real physical obstacle between them and the tabernacle, they still had as much of a portion with God as all of the other tribes had who were on the west side of the river. I think that the trouble really started for Israel when these tribes decided to establish their identity in something other than God's promise and God's faithfulness. If we read the book of Judges, we see that the biggest problem facing this generation or the, the, the children of this generation was actually the problem of their own sin, which is something that this altar of witness had no power to address. So let me ask you this morning, what is it that you are trusting in that secures your identity in Christ, that assures you that you have a portion in God? Is it that you feel like you're a good person? Is it the fact that you're tuned in online or that you're in here with these four walls? 
Or is it the promise of the gospel in which God has said that everyone who believes in the name of Christ shall be saved? That declaration is the only thing that is capable of giving us a confidence that is able to carry us through each and every day with a hope to know that we are his. You know, the thing that made Phineas exalt God for how he was among his people wasn't this altar, as imposing as it was. The thing that made Phineas leap for joy and that, the thing that pleased him was to see that there was a heart of love for God and a desire to see God exalted in the lives of these people's children. That's what made Phineas so glad. And so it ought to be among us that our greatest desire is to see Christ glorified in our lives, in the lives of our children, our neighbors, and everywhere in the world. Joshua chapter 22 has all the drama of an exciting court case. But more than that, it holds important lessons for us as a church today. It teaches us that God's worship is a serious thing. It instructs us in how we ought to deal with one another when we see sin in each other's lives. It warns us against the lie that our sin is a strictly a private thing. And it teaches us not to look to totems or buildings or past deeds of service as evidence that we have a portion in God. As we seek to live together as God's people, the way we've been instructed to do, we will do well to take these lessons and apply them to our own lives as we seek to live in the promises that God has kept and secured in and through the coming of Jesus Christ. May he give us the strength to live according to his word as we wait on the promise of his sure return. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have provided passages like Joshua chapter 22, passages that remind us and assure, assure us that our standing before you is not a matter of what we have done, but it is a matter of your grace and what you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our church. I pray that you would bind us together, that, the, that your presence would be manifest in and among us, not because we just do things that you're supposed to do in church, not just because we sing certain songs, but because we have believed in Christ, who is our Savior, and we have experienced the life that he gives. And we pray, Father, that that testimony would be manifested so that the world would see and know that God really is with us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.